This is Nick Dodge with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Veteran Board Chairman Curtis Schmidt Jr. has resigned today after he was charged with possession of child pornography back in January. Since then, Schmidt has faced numerous requests from the Evers administration to step down prior to his resignation in the interest of the board. Schmidt did not directly respond to these requests. Evers appointed Schmidt in 2019 and could not remove him from the board himself until he had received a complaint by a Wisconsin taxpayer. Schmidt stepped down after a complaint was filed by Republican candidate for governor Kevin Nicholson after saying that he, quote, dishonored the reputation of the board and displayed an incomprehensible lack of leadership, end quote. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Schmidt will go back to court on Tuesday for a scheduling conference. An industrial contractor based in Oshkosh says that they had planned to build a fleet of U.S. Postal Service trucks here in Wisconsin, but were rebuffed by Foxconn after asking to build the fleet at their Mount Pleasant facility. The Oshkosh Defense Director of Communications said that their Wisconsin buildings were too small for the required manufacturing space and looked to tech company Foxconn's 1 million square foot facility. Instead, those mail trucks are being built in South Carolina. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that Foxconn has made several plans for manufacturing at its Wisconsin site, including electric vehicles, automated coffee kiosks, and ventilators, yet these were never accomplished. The Racine County Board and Mount Pleasant Village Board met last Wednesday to discuss plans for Foxconn's Wisconsin site. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is mobilizing tonight in downtown Madison. This event is part of the Poor People's Campaign's promotion of their nationwide march on Washington, D.C. on June 18th. A sizable crowd is near the Capitol Square, and an assembly at First United Methodist Church was slated for just as this broadcast started at 6 p.m. A former Dane County Sheriff's deputy who was fired last fall for undisclosed reasons was likely responsible for her own injuries, according to a new report. Former Deputy Sarah Bortz Rodriguez had initially reported that she had shot a man who stabbed her in Feste Park. A month later, she was let go from the department. A new report finds that the former deputy reportedly injured herself while intoxicated after an earlier incident review. The Wisconsin State Journal obtained a nine-page letter from the sheriff's office about her firing. That letter describes her telling authorities that she had taken a substance and may have hallucinated her alleged assailant. Bortz Rodriguez was let go by the department for violating code of conduct policies, including truthfulness, ethical behavior, and work performance in November of 2021. Today, Public Health Madison in Dane County announced that the Alliant Energy Center will continue their COVID-19 testing and vaccination clinics into April. This follows a previous announcement from the Public Health Department that the clinics were to close this coming Sunday, April 3rd. Although cases of COVID-19 have decreased in Wisconsin following the January spike, a subvariant of Omicron, known as BA2, has been identified. The testing site is open seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. in the east lobby of the Coliseum starting April 3rd. And now on to today's top stories. WORT producer Nate Weggehout continues our coverage of the 2022 spring election with a trip to Cross Plains, where two candidates are running for the Dane County Board of Supervisors District 28 seat.
The Dane County Board of Supervisors, District 28, sits in the northwest corner of Dane County, containing the villages of Cross Plains, Mazomany, and Blue Mounds. The two candidates running for the rural seat are incumbent Michelle Doolin and competitor Bill Brosius. Doolin is finishing up her first term as supervisor after first being elected to the seat in 2020, where she ran unopposed. Doolin also ran for governor in 2018, but lost in the Democratic primary. Doolin currently works as a teaching assistant at the Paul Mitchell School, a cosmetology and barber school in Madison, after having to retire from being a hairdresser due to being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2016. She says that her time as a hairdresser has made her a unique asset to the Dane County Board. You know, I made a career of communicating with people and finding ways of, like, solving people's problems and reading between the lines, you know, like figuring out how to make people happy with their appearance, which is not a small thing. And I, I think that makes me uniquely suited to doing the work that I do with the county board because, you know, you spend about 75% listening and then 25% talking. Barossi has declined to talk with WORT about his election campaign and has said very little about his platform. He has served as a village trustee in the village of Cross Plains for the last seven years and holds a master's degree in business administration from Cardinal Stritch University. Barossi has received the endorsement of one current board member, Dave Ripp of Wanakee. The conservative-leaning Ripp recently voted to overturn Dane County's mask mandate, along with supervisors Tim Kiefer, Tim Rockwell, and Jeff Wigand, according to WKOW. Brosius has also made several donations to the Dane County GOP and former President Donald Trump, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Brosius told the Wisconsin State Journal that there is no one single issue that he sees as most vital to the folks in his district and that each town and village has its own priorities. Doolin also says that there are a large array of issues concerning her district. She says that rural broadband is a major issue in her area, especially after the pandemic. She says that while many schools were upset that they had to move to virtual learning over the pandemic, she understands that one of the largest barriers that faced students was the lack of reliable internet to help their learning. Doolin says that she is also passionate about helping to revitalize the local economies in her district and make the small towns in her district less reliant on Madison. And then just that kind of economic sustainability that we need to kind of revitalize our main streets in our, in our little areas. We don't want to just be bedroom to Madison. I mean, of course, you know, we have a wealth of resources really close by because we have Madison. But we really are committed to local commerce as much as we can. And so I want to make sure that we, you know, don't tear down too many little stores to put up condos out here. In a Q&A with the Wisconsin State Journal, Brosius says that he is committed to helping the people in his district through his experience as a village trustee. He says that if elected, he will represent the district without bias, answering only to the people in rural Dane County. Doolin says that she is passionate to continue serving her community and giving a voice to the people who feel unheard compared to the city of Madison. I guess when I ran two years ago, the thing was, I mean, everybody, when I was canvassing for signatures, I'm like, you know, Parisi doesn't care about us out here. You know, the county board doesn't care. They care about Madison. And 
I, it was my mission to figure out what, you know, how that worked, why there's that perception. And it's really not that people don't care. It's that people don't really understand what it's like out here. Like, it's just the difference between being rural and being urban. And since I've lived in both areas, I can kind of understand that. And I am staunchly committed to representing my district. The 2022 spring election takes place on April 5th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Wisconsinites are urging Congress to drop prescription drug prices and place new controls on big pharmaceutical companies to keep them from price gouging. The petition comes just a few months after drug makers bumped the cost of more than 800 prescription drugs. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. More than 126,000 Wisconsinites have signed an AARP petition urging Congress to lower prescription drug prices. According to GoodRx, an American healthcare company, the average cost of prescription drugs has risen by about 2.5% since the pandemic began. And in January, the prices of more than 800 prescription drugs went up by about 5%. In an AARP Wisconsin news conference Thursday, U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin pointed out that Americans pay, on average, three times more for prescriptions than folks in other wealthy nations. In 2020, one in three Americans saw their out-of-pocket medication costs increase. That has real consequences, and that needs to change. Pharmaceutical companies say high drug costs allow them to invest in research and development of future medications. But Baldwin argues most of the profit likely goes into marketing, advertising, and other non-R&D initiatives. In a 2021 Kaiser Family Foundation poll, more than 80% of respondents said they'd support allowing the federal government to negotiate prescription costs with the major pharmaceutical companies. Wauwatosa resident Nancy Cook, a retired nurse with rheumatoid arthritis, says the out-of-pocket cost for her medication increased from $0 in 2021 to over $140 a month this year. Doesn't sound like a lot, but unlimited income, it's a lot. <laughs> I simply can't afford that. And for now, I've been charging it, but that's not going to be sustainable much longer. Karen Justison takes medication for heart disease and diabetes. Last year, she says her doctor prescribed her two new brand name diabetic drugs that yielded excellent results. But the out-of-pocket expenses became too much, forcing her to transition to a lower cost and less effective alternative with unwanted side effects. Lowering prescription drug prices would have a positive impact for me. It would allow me to be able to take the newer brand name medications, which optimize my health and life without the pressure of high costs. Senator Baldwin has sponsored several measures to keep prescription drug costs under control, including a new proposal to cap insulin costs, which she says nearly doubled from 2012 to 2016. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. (laughs) 
Last week, the State Department of Natural Resources issued a new permit to Kennard Farms in Kiwani County, saying that they must monitor the groundwater in the surrounding area for nitrate pollution. The move is a win for Kiwani County residents who have fought the farm for almost a decade over groundwater pollution from the farm. To learn more about the issue and why local residents are celebrating, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Tony Wilkin-Gibbert, the executive director of Midwest Environmental Advocates, a group that helped residents bring a lawsuit against the farm to protect their water. So, Tony, let's start things off with some background here. What's going on at Kennard Farms? Why were people upset that they wanted to grow? So, Kennard Farms is one of the largest CAFOs or factory farms in the state of Wisconsin. It's located in the town of Lincoln in Kiwani County. Kiwani County is just at the, the foot of the Door Peninsula, and um, many folks may know that the geology in that region is very sensitive. The the land is characterized by karst bedrock uh, and shallow soil depths. So that means that um, contaminants that are on the surface that are applied to the soil very quickly can find their way into the aquifer. Um, and so residents in Kiwani County have for many, many years been concerned about groundwater contamination because they've been living with the impacts of pollution. And those concerns have developed over the last last two or so decades as factory farms have expanded and expanded in that region of the state. Um, so those two trends, factory farm expansion on the one hand and growing issues and concern around groundwater contamination on the other have developed in unison. So Kennard Farms, as I mentioned, one of the largest CAFOs in that part of the state, and it was the subject of a uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court case that was decided last summer. And in that case, my organization, Midwest Environmental Advocates, represented five neighbors of the farm who had for many years been advocating that the DNR do more to protect their groundwater. That decision was, uh, as I mentioned, rendered uh, back in the summer, and the court did say that the DNR had the authority to order more stringent permit conditions to protect groundwater in Kiwani County. So what what we're talking about today is the, um, the follow-up to that Supreme Court decision. The DNR has now issued a modified permit um, in response to the state, the state Supreme Court's decision, um, that permit is for canard farms, and it does set a limit on the number of animals that the farm can have, and it sets uh, a schedule for the farm to monitor groundwater quality underneath fields where it's spreading these massive amounts of manure. So that, in, in sum, is the, the background to the issue and where we are today. And now I want to get to that permit here in a second, but before that, maybe a quick sort of logistical question for you. How do these large factory farms impact the groundwater in these communities? How does the pollution happen? Um, so these farms, um, you know, just it's essentially the way the operations work, right, is that there are a massive number of uh, cows concentrated in a small amount of, of space, and the waste that is generated by those operations has to be dealt with and um, farms tend to 
construct uh, large manure lagoons where um, that manure is is stored. Um, thousands and thousands of gallons of manure is stored, and then it is spread on surrounding fields in accordance with nutrient management plans, which are um, plans that are uh, approved by the DNR that have some ability to protect groundwater by ensuring that spreading is not done in ways that are um, uh, beyond what the landscape can handle. But, you know, in reality, those nutrient management plans are more about um, uh, the agronomic um, factors of, of ensuring that there's uh, sufficient nutrients for the crops that are growing there and are really not an effective way to protect groundwater. And so um, one of the things that we uh, and our, our clients presented to the DNR in the course of this permit modification was a uh, analysis done to show that given the concentration of cows and of large factory farms in Kiwani County, there is nowhere left to safely spread manure. When you total all the manure and all the fertilizer that is present in the county, um, the landscape cannot absorb that amount of nitrogen without um, uh, contaminating groundwater and, and resulting in nitrate exceedances. Um, and many folks know that um, you know, nitrate pollution and, and elevated levels of nitrates um, are uh, just a significant problem in our state, uh, especially for folks who are on private wells. And um, that is especially true in Kiwani County, given all the factors that we've just talked about. And now going back to the permit that was issued on Friday. So it says that they have to stay roughly the same size, but it also says that they have to monitor the groundwater in the area. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So uh, currently, Kennard Farms does monitor the groundwater beneath its production facility. And there have been, um, over the last several years, exceedances that have, have been detected there. Um, the, as we talked about, the, the concern with generating this amount of manure and then spreading it on fields, surrounding fields in Kiwani County, is that the fields are, cannot uh, absorb uh, those level of nutrients, or that level of nutrients, without nitrate and bacteria uh, quickly running through those shallow soils, through the fractured bedrock, and into groundwater. Um, that's, that basic problem is well understood. What is difficult, though, is that the groundwater in this region moves in a very... Um, dynamic and unpredictable way. And so unless there is active um, and regular monitoring of these areas, it's um, challenging for uh, there to be accountability. And it's challenging to trace um, particular instances of contamination back to specific spreading practices, or uh, in some cases, even specific facilities. So. Um, the addition of monitoring wells as part of the permit is a way in which DNR can um, uh, better enforce Wisconsin's water protection laws to ensure that uh, these kinds of spreading practices are not contaminating groundwater. And if they are, that there is accountability for that. Because the, the, the baseline laws that we have are, are very clear. It's, it's not lawful to contaminate groundwater. 
Um, but we need to make sure that there's the monitoring and the infrastructure in place to um, to make that law meaningful and um, to to protect the groundwater, the drinking water of Kiwani County residents. And speaking of the Kiwani County residents, have you been able to talk to anyone since the issuing of this new permit? What do they think about it? Are they satisfied with the limits put in place? Well, my coworkers have talked to community members over the last uh, few days here, and um, I think that uh, folks up there are satisfied that it it seems like their voices were heard um, for many, many years, uh, and in you know the years of this this struggle for clean drinking water in Kiwani County. Um, residents up there have attended many public hearings. They've advocated for many years with the DNR and a lot of instances, they felt like their voices didn't matter. Um, but in the process of, of modifying this permit, not only was there that victory at the Wisconsin Supreme Court, but then the DNR held two public hearings on this issue and uh, dozens of people showed up and uh, they, they feel like the DNR um, uh, heard them, at least uh, relative to what uh, has historically been the case. So that is that is really satisfying to know that their voices made a difference and that something significant here um, has been achieved. So, Tony, I know we're running up against the clock here, but do you just have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me? Uh, you, you know, I really thank you for, for inviting me on to talk about this. I know that um, sometimes these can get to be um, technical issues are not pleasant to think about, but, um, you know, the safety of our water in Wisconsin, the safety of Wisconsinites drinking water really depends on these kinds of um, permitting decisions and the use of the um, state's legal authority to protect groundwater. And so um, it's, uh, again, just really great to be able to share a little bit about what's happening and to um, uplift the the community in Kiwani County that achieved this victory. I've been talking with Tony Wilkin Gibbard, the executive director of the Midwest Environmental Advocates, about Kennard Farms in Kiwani County. Uh, Tony, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We talk with the newest artist-in-residence with the city's sewerage department about what it means to be an artist for the city's sewerage department. Bridging the Gap takes a look at frivolous arguments on the internet and reviews of two movies making their way to streaming. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining me. Last month, the City of Madison Sewerage Department announced that Nipponette Lansom would be the first ever artist-in-residence for the department. On this morning's 8 o'clock buzz, the illustrator and tattoo artist spoke with host Brian Standing about the honor, how they will help teach Madison residents about water, and what exactly it means to be the artist-in-residence for the City's Sewerage Department. Nipponette Lansom joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Hi. 
Well, first of all, congratulations on your appointment. Was there a uh, competitive field of applicants for this position? Were there a lot of people seeking to be a artist in residence at a sewer district? Thank you. Uh, yeah, there were actually quite a few applicants. I think I heard from the 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 board that there were maybe 20 people who applied. And what made you want to be a sewer district artist in residence? Mainly the focus on the idea of one water. I've done a lot of work with water, water protection, um, water cleanliness, water as something to be respected and like in a relationship with as opposed to just something to be used. So it really aligned with a lot of the work that I was already doing as an artist and as a social practice artist. And you'll be working in the district's historic Shop One, which is being converted for use as a community space. What's that space like? Tell us about that. It's really cool. So it used to be a pump station. Um, It's not like a huge building or anything, given that it was originally like a workshop. But a portion of it has been converted to like a large meeting room. It has like wood panels on the walls. It has art on the ceiling. There are conference rooms upstairs and like a garage workshop in the back. There's a lot of pieces around that really show that it used to be like a building that was used for work. Um, There's a crane in there. There's some pieces of the pump still in there. It's cool. It's a nice blend of the previous function and a community space. Now, the Ho-Chunk called the Madison area Tejope or Four Lakes. How important is the story of water in Native American tradition, and how does your background as a Native American speak to the the idea of water? Water is... I don't, I don't think I can understate the importance of water to indigenous populations. My family is from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, so I'm not originally from this area, but the cultural importance of water is the same regardless of where we're from because like my my family, my ancestors, we always followed rivers and lakes in our just so you know, as as we like traveled, as we hunted, as we settled down, it was always along water. And I think that's this you know, that's similar for every other tribe. It plays a huge role in our culture. Um, We really honor it. And so it's really important to me to make sure to continue that in my work. And what do you have planned for your one-year residency? What's coming up? I am planning a series of community events that will engage the community, the district, and the water in kind of a three-way conversation. Um, I don't really see myself as creating something specifically to be delivered, but more as a facilitator for this conversation to bring the community into like into the pl- into the process, into the like the thick of it, right? So I have I, we just had an event on Saturday, and that went really well. Um, a bunch of folks came out to the sewerage district to listen to local indigenous speakers and performers talk about the importance of water in their communities. Um, John John Greendeer was there, as well as Anastasia Adams, who's a Yupik throat singer. So that was really cool. Our next event is going to be at the end of May. Um, each one of the events is going to focus on like a different aspect of how communities are affected by water, um, whether that's by water contamination or through like how water is used as irrigation, how water is, all water is connected, and so how we interact with water in Madison really is impacted by global water systems as well. 
so yeah, we've got five events total planned. So yeah, keep an eye out. And how can people find out more if they want to participate? Um, we have two social media pages, One Water Madison on both Facebook and Instagram. I run those. They will have all of the event information posted as well as any other art that I'm working on. So how has the job gone so far? As an artist, do you feel welcome amongst all those engineers and bureaucrats? I do. People are pretty curious, but everyone's been very supportive. I think I think a lot of folks are like, why do we need an artist in residence? Um, <laughs> which is understandable. You know, it's the first one. But it, everyone's been very nice and, and how, very helpful. And how do you answer that question? I mean, I personally would answer it by, like, I think a lot of people think about connecting with the community in terms of science, right? Like, you want the community to understand the science of how water treatment works and, like, pollution and all of that. And you want to, like, focus on the facts. But I think it's really important to focus on the emotions behind it and the personal relationship and, like, how water cleanliness and water protection and water conservation, all of that relates to people on a very personal level. So less about like what you can and can't flush, even though that's, that's also important, but more about why you should care. And art is a really good way to tap into people's emotions. And so if you want to make people care about something in a personal way, connecting with them as a person in an emotional way is a good way to get that started. And what do you have coming up? What are, what's the next event? It's going to be at the end of May. It's a dialogue with two black community activists who are going to talk about um, how water contamination affects black motherhood, especially in Madison and elsewhere. Now, you've talked a lot about using your community education background. Uh, will you have an opportunity to use your illustration or maybe even your tattooing skills in your residency? Yeah, um, I'm going to be creating illustrations based on each of the conversations that we hold that will highlight each community's relationship to water and compiling them into an art book by the end of the year. I don't think I'm going to be tattooing people at the at the plant, but if you want like a water-related tattoo, you can always find me at my shop on Lily Street. Okay, so tattooing's not part of the official residency, but uh, might be, no. might be a sideline. Okay, good to know. And then uh, at the end of your one-year residency, um, how will you know if, if your efforts to educate people about water have been successful? I think based on the amount of interaction and conversation that people are having around water, I have. I'm I'm very, man, I, I can't really think of the word. I want people to talk to me, right? I want to have interaction with people. So I have these social media accounts. I'm holding these events. If people show up, if people interact, then I will consider it a success. And uh, what are your plans after your one-year residency? I don't know. That's pretty far out. just just taking it one year at a time okay well thank you so much for joining us we've been speaking with madison metropolitan sewerage district artist in resident residence nipponet lansom you can find out more about nipponet's programming at onewatermadison.org nipponet lansom thank you so much for joining us thank you This week marks the birthday of Marvin Gaye, the late great Motown and R&B performer. His album, What's Going On, is arguably one of the best protest albums ever written. Feature contributor Harry Richardson explores Gaye's life and why the album was embraced by protest movements across the country. 
This Saturday, April 2nd, marks the birth in 1939 of Marvin Gaye, the great Motown and R&B artist. He made one of the greatest albums of the last 50 years, What's Going On, in 1971. It was also one of the greatest protest albums ever. Ironically, Gaye had not been political, but he was influenced by the time's social movements. His father was an evangelical minister. His mother was a maid. He grew up in public housing in Washington, D.C., he started to sing in church at age four. He was frequently beaten by his father and even kicked out of the house. He credited his mother's support, without which he probably would have committed suicide. Gay was in several doo-wop groups in high school. Gay's group got their big break singing in the popular group The Moon Glows. Gay moved with the group to Chicago and found session work for established acts such as Chuck Berry. In 1960, Gay relocated to Detroit where he impressed Motown's president, Barry Gordy, and was soon working for him. Gay was already one of Motown's biggest stars when he recorded What's Going On. Ronaldo Obi Benson, one of the four tops, originally wrote the song. After seeing anti-war protesters in Berkeley, Benson said, The police was beaten on them, but they weren't bothering anybody. I started wondering what the F was going on. Benson and a fellow Motown writer wrote the song, but his fellow Four Tops bandmates said it was too political. Joan Baez also turned down the song before Benson offered it to Gay. Benson said, Marvin definitely put his finishing touches on it. He added lyrics, and he added some spice to the melody. He absorbed himself to the extent that when you heard the song, you could see the people and feel the hurt and pain. We measured him for the suit, and he tailored it. Gay changed what's going on from a question mark to a statement. Gay recalled, for the first time I really felt like I had something to say, but the album came close to not being made at all. Put it out or I'll never work for you again, was Marvin Gaye's stark warning to Gordy, who was also his brother-in-law. Gordy said it was the worst record he ever heard in his life. It was also too political. As a response, Gay struck for seven months, refusing to record, but when Gordy was away traveling, other Motown officials released 100,000 copies of the song on January 17, 1971. Within four days after the enthusiastic plays from DJs across the nation, every single copy was sold out. It would go on to sell two million copies, hailed by Jackson Brown as the most articulate and deeply felt anti-war song of the time. After the single's success, Gay convinced Gordy to release a full album with this song and other songs which explored poverty, racial discrimination, urban decay, police brutality, drug abuse, political corruption, and the devastation of Vietnam. Gay's younger brother, Frankie, inspired him to write What's Happening Brother on the album about the disillusionment of war veterans returning to President Nixon's America, with unemployment running at 6% in 1971. Frankie said the song was so personal and heartfelt that he wept after hearing it for the first time. One of the album's standout songs was Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology, written solely by Gay, which lamented the environmental nightmare of oil wasted on the ocean and upon our seas 
fish full of mercury and radiation underground and in the sky. The song was performed at the 2021 Grammys, showing its staying power. Inner City Blues makes me want to holler, join What's Going On, and Mercy Mercy Me as the singles issued from the album. Gay thanked James Nix for the lyrics. Nix was a songwriter who was also the custodian and elevator operator at the Motown offices. In his 80s, Nix earned handsome royalties for the numerous times his words were sampled on rap and R&B records. The album sold millions and made millions for Gay, but he still descended further into drug use and abusive treatment of his second spouse, Jan Gaylord, who he once attacked with a kitchen knife to her throat. Tragically, Gay's life ended violently on April 1, 1984, a day before his 45th birthday, when he was shot by his father following a physical altercation trying to protect his mom. But Gay's legacy lives on through his music and the Marvin Gay Jr. Memorial Foundation, dedicated to helping those suffering from drug abuse and alcoholism started by his mother, Alberta, and continued by his sister, Jean. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Are there more wheels or more doors on Earth? While the question may seem trivial, it has caught the internet by storm as people on TikTok discuss the frivolous question. On this week's Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen takes a look at just why people on the internet love to argue about everything, even things of little importance. For the past couple of weeks, the internet finds itself embroiled in this debate. Are there more wheels or doors in the world? This question went viral on TikTok, with people defending the side they picked and others analyzing the many scenarios which could further complicate the debate. This trend all started when Ryan Nixon, a man from New Zealand, posted a Wheels vs. Doors poll on Twitter. At first, he posted this poll just for fun. But the poll has now since received 220,000 votes and sparked a debate all over the world. While this debate seems to be trivial, this isn't the first time the internet has had a heated discussion over something entirely unimportant. This week, we'll be exploring why the internet loves a good debate. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations.
The wheel versus door arguments had people analyzing all the different scenarios that could lead to a different outcome. Some argued that because of cars, there will always be more wheels instead of doors. Others argued that skyscrapers hold more doors, therefore there are more doors in the world. Regardless of whether this debate could ultimately be settled in a scientific experiment, it seems that the internet rather enjoys debating about things that seem utterly trivial. This isn't the first time we had seen people get worked up over debates like this. In 2015, a woman posted a picture of her wedding dress and asked if the two colors on it were black and blue or white and gold. The internet quickly spun into a debate, deciphering the photo's lighting, angles, and location to determine the correct answer. It was discovered later that the dress was, in fact, blue and black. The frenzy it had caused on the internet even made its way into research settings where people looked into how the brain perceived colors. More photos like this came out afterward. In 2019, a photo of a pair of Van sneakers circulated the internet and asked whether the colors of the shoes were pink and white or gray and teal. Of course, everyone started to take sides on what colors they saw on the shoes, leading to speculations that the difference in how people perceived the colors had to do with some intricate brain science. While these debate topics seem entirely trivial, People actually love to debate over funny topics when hanging out with friends. Do a Google search on internet debates and you'll find a list of results that lead you to the most popular trivial debate topics that people like to use as a conversation starter. It's an easy way to get a person's perspective on a small subject and can often lead to deeper conversations. Add the element of the internet and you get a larger community of people participating in the conversation. For Media Group's Senior Vice President of Digital Marketing and Media, Alex Hinojosa, gave his opinion on why internet debates are able to go viral. He says, quote, Viral content also pulls on emotions because although it can bring us all together, it also creates the instant spark of debate. You're wrong, I'm right, that's how it is, end quote. These debates are part of a larger element on the internet, which is viral content. When something goes viral, it means that it has gone widespread on the internet and has been viewed by thousands of people. When an action goes viral, it can then become a trend. Participating in viral trends can make you feel like you're part of something bigger and that you're up to date on what's popular these days. Remember when the ice bucket challenge went around and people all over the world were pouring ice buckets over their head? Everyone was so eager to be nominated and pass on their nomination to include their friends in on the trend. Nowadays, people on TikTok try to make their videos go viral every single day. Whether it's coming up with dance moves to a song that people would like to cover, or put out music that people would like to use in their videos. It has become a large part of internet culture to not only participate in viral trends, but also start them. Thus, participating in a large internet debate can also make you feel like you're with the in-crowd. Whether we'll ever settle the debate of wheels versus doors is still unknown. But it seems that internet debates is a thing that will always be around. People love to be right, and people love to be included. So which side are you on? Are there more doors, or are there more wheels? For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen.
On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two movies coming to streaming. First up is the 2010 buddy cop comedy The Other Guys with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg. Then we hear about the 2018 superhero drama Fast Color. We are doing a lot of property damage! Oh cool, a helicopter! Where'd you learn to drive like that? Grand Theft Auto! That was a clip from the trailer for The Other Guys, co-written, produced, and directed by Adam McKay back in 2010, but it just started showing on Netflix. This was a pretty good comedy cop-buddy movie where everything is over the top. A lot of the movie is laugh-out-loud funny, but some bits just don't work. And at an hour and 47 minutes, it's about 15 minutes too long. The other guys of the title are Will Ferrell as Alan Gamble, a forensics accountant, and Mark Wahlberg as his frustrated partner, wannabe hotshot detective Terry Holtz. They envy the department's two star detectives, played by Samuel Jackson and Dwayne Johnson. Their 15 minutes of screen time may be the movie's best. The star detectives go outrageously far, too far, and leave an opening for a new dynamic duo to take their place. Holtz leaps at the chance to get out of the office while Gamble drags his feet. So far, so good. But then they have to give them a domestic side. Holtz is trying to get back with his ex, and his attempts aren't very convincing, although he does a pretty mean pirouette. Worse, though, is the home life of the straight-laced Gamble. He's married to a doctor, Sheila, played by Ava Morales. This starts a running gag of Gamble as improbably attractive to striking women. This puzzles and sort of outrages his partner. But this gag, like everything else in the movie, goes over the top. But here, the results aren't so funny. There's a fun part here for Michael Keaton as their put-upon police captain, who improbably, but also hilariously, is also a night manager at Bed Bath & Beyond. Steve Coogan is okay as the billionaire they try to take down. There is, as with several McKay films, some making fun of the super-rich. He did Vice and The Big Short, after all. The closing credits are themselves a critique of capitalism. They contain more information than most American movies. All in all, a pretty good over-the-top movie, a little too long and sadly sexist. Now for a new sci-fi flick with strong women characters. Our abilities can't fix things. If something's broken, it stays broken. That is different. She can see the colors. That was a clip from the trailer for Fast Colors, co-written and directed by Julia Hurt. This is an old-fashioned family melodrama set in a dystopian near future, somewhere in desolate rural America. The opening monologue explains it's been seven years since it's rained, and the only thing anyone can think to do is raise the price of water. Into this barren landscape drives a world-weary Ruth, Guga Mbatha-Ra. Ruth is tired of running and is headed to that place where they have to take you in, home. But she has brought danger with her. Ruth is subject to uncontrollable tremors that grow to be a small earthquake. She tries to get some rest at a rundown motel. The half bottle of water costs almost as much as the room, but her uncontrollable shaking happens again, alerting authorities. Ruth is momentarily captured by a hapless government agent, but she escapes. She eventually makes her way to her mom's place. She doesn't tell a wary beau, Lorraine Toussaint, that she's being pursued. Beau has been raising Ruth's daughter, Lila, Senea Sidney, alone on an isolated farmhouse. Bo takes her in. Ruth says she wants to start again. 
which covers a lot of ground. It means to try to rebuild their relationship and to help her control her powers. Ruth also wants to get to know her daughter. It seems all the women in the family going way back had the gift. Lila has it too and sees the colors of the power. Bo can no longer see the colors. Ruth's pursuers eventually find her, giving us a sad but hopeful ending with just a hint of a possible sequel. All in all, a well-done independent low-budget film with strong, realistically drawn women characters at the center. Oh, and there's a good, small, but important part for the always reliable John Strathairn as the town sheriff. The movie came out in 2019, but just started showing on Netflix. Well worth checking out. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing from the 8 O'Clock Buzz, Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.